0: is the Powerful Nonsense Podcast. Learn everything you need to know to make a living outside the nine-to-five grind and crush it at life. You'll learn from inspirational guests and in-depth discussions. Go from employee to entrepreneur and start creating a life you love and still pay the bills. So here are your hosts, Wayne Ingram and Jem Yildiz. Let's get on with the show. This podcast is sponsored by the University of Northampton, the first UK university to be awarded the Ashoka U Changemaker Campus status in recognition for their commitment to social entrepreneurship. We're back. Hello. Again. It's us. Right into your ear holes of podcast goodness. Yep. That's us, the powerful nonsenses. For those who are tuning in for the first time, I am Wayne Ingram.
1: And I am Jem Yordes.
0: And we're here to drop some nugget bombs. Well, I say we... It's not we're really we're us actually
1: extracting some knowledge extracting
0: bonds. some knowledge bonds uh, from John Danaher,
1: who I actually found because I was doing some research on like technological unemployment, and his blog is literally packed with so much information. I was just like, oh my god, I've got to get this guy on just to kind of pick his brain a little.
0: I'm so glad you. Did. I was so looking. I, I mean, I gushed a little bit to John because <laughs> I was really looking forward to this conversation, and it definitely didn't disappoint. Um, if you're interested at all in technology and where the world is going, um, or even if you're just a little bit of a sci-fi geek, then this one is definitely for you we kind of talk about where work is going where lifestyle is going all that sort of stuff and basically just talking generally about the future and and stuff it's really interesting chat
1: yeah I think for anybody who kind of wants to know where the the future's heading we know there's a lot of changes going on in the world and I think John is ahead of his time in terms of what he's already thinking about and actually Mm -hmm. just bringing this knowledge to people's awareness several times during an episode my mind was just getting blown Mm -hmm. and so I was just like Wow, I'm just looking forward to you guys having to have a listen to this and just get your own opinions on where you think we might be heading. And maybe is this just stuff in sci-fi, or is this actually where we're going?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always look back and and always say like when I was like ten, eleven years old, uh, you know, about fifteen years ago, um, mobile phones didn't even have a color screen. I remember when the first color screen mobile phone came out. Mm-hmm. And the advert where they were waving the mobile phone in the air and all the paint was coming out behind. I remember that. I remember when phones first had cameras on. Um sounding like an old man. Mm-hmm. But and, and I always like look back at that and then I think, you know, in fifteen years, look how much has changed. And then I just think, well, how much could change in the next fifteen years?
1: And I think it's gonna be a big one, to be honest.
0: Me too. So so we're gonna unpackage all of that and delve into all that sort of stuff with John. Um so let's get cracking. So,
1: John, welcome to the Powerful nonsense podcast. Could you quickly introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Uh, yeah, so my name is John Danaher, and I'm a lecturer in law at the National University of Ireland in Galway uh, with an interest in uh, technology and the future of work.
0: I'm actually really excited to actually, because uh, I'm very much into my technology and kind of where the future's going, so I'm really looking forward to having a chat. My first question to you, John, is, generally speaking, are you a technophile or a technophobe?
2: Yeah, I'd probably say neither. Um, <laughs> I, just to be annoyingly in the middle of the road. Um, I think there are many like, positive things about technology, mm-hmm. and also things that are maybe concerning and problematic. But I suppose, on balance, I'm probably more technophilic than technophobic. Uh, I certainly tend towards favoring technological progress more than some of my uh, peers in universities or in philosophy and things like that.
0: And and why do you think then, so I take it from that you mean that a lot of your peers are uh, anti-technology on the most part. Why do you think that is?
2: Uh, So I don't know if people are necessarily anti-technology. A lot of people just don't really think about it or care about it very much. Uh, and maybe are kind of default skeptics because their you know, everyday life, they they don't really think about long-term technological trends, mm-hmm. and they are comfortable with the way things currently are.
3: Right.
2: Um, a lot of academics, for example, are very comfortable with the way things are, and a lot of people who are in pre-existing professional forms of work tend to be quite comfortable with the status quo because that status quo has afforded them certain benefits, so they tend to be quite skeptical of changes. Mm-hmm. And where did Um, your, so, no, that was really kind of the end of the point. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, like, where
1: did your interest to kind of really dive deep into, obviously your blog is, is a great blog is how I found you. I was just wondering where did that interest start?
2: It'd be probably difficult for me to try and recover exactly why I became interested in all the topics that I am interested in. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is just you know purely contingent accidents of personal history that you find some topic interesting and you pursue it down a a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. But I guess you know my standard narrative is that I was as a child always very interested in science fiction, Mm -hmm. and as I kind of pursued an academic career, I looked for ways that I could channel my interest, my childish interest in not necessarily childish, but my childhood in interest in science mm-hmm. fiction into kind of a professional uh, research interest. Mm-hmm. So I was always looking for ways to do that.
0: Yeah, I think um, a lot of people that really delve into technology, I, I know my I'm a proper gadget man, and I think uh, my interest in technology uh, kind of stems from that interest in sci-fi as well. Um, do you think with science fiction... Do you think that uh, science fiction is responsible for a lot of the technological leaps that we've taken, or do you think it would have come anyway?
2: Yeah, I guess it's really hard to kind of unpack a, a claim like that, whether mm-hmm. what's the cause and what's the effect. But I think you can certainly point to examples of technological change that have been driven by uh, possibilities that were first imagined in science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, people do work on devices like the medical tricorder in Star Trek mm-hmm. because they saw that device first in, in Star Trek. Right. Um, or, you know, things like communication devices. I don't know if they're um, the exact... Sp- you know, people haven't necessarily copied the model that they see on, on sci-fi uh, representations of it, but... You can certainly see affinities or similarities between Mm -hmm. science fiction um, back from the 60s or 70s and what we now have. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So I I think there's a bit of probably both. I'm not necessarily a technological determinist who thinks that these things are happening outside of human influence. I think uh, fiction kind of creates a realm of possibilities that human engineers then look to. realize in various ways they may not they may not realize it in ways that we always expect and anticipate but Mm -hmm. there is an influence from the fictional realm yeah
1: you mentioned that some of your academic peers are sort of overlooking some of the changes what are what are those changes that you think people are totally kind of not acknowledging
2: um i think you know one of the ones that i write about a lot would be the impact of this is what, what um, McAfee and Brynjolfsson and their book, The Second Machine Age, call uh, well they call the Second Machine Age the wave of automation and artificial intelligence that mm-hmm. will impact upon uh, work as we know it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, again, in let's say academia, almost my peers are academics. Uh, we may not think about the various ways in which education is going to be disrupted. Or I teach lawyers uh, or, or potential future lawyers, and we the way in which I teach them is very traditional and old fashioned and may not really be preparing them for a future in which a lot of the work processes that form part of the traditional legal practice become automated. Um, those are the kind of changes that I think people are uh, overlooking or not paying attention to at the moment.
0: So how do you think education is going to be
2: disrupted then? Yeah, I guess I have mixed uh, opinions upon this. Um, And I kind of go back and forth between thinking that the traditional model is is still valuable, you know, the traditional liberal uh, education where you're exposed to lots of different great, grand ideas, Mm -hmm. and that gives you a set of critical thinking skills that can actually prepare you for lots of different jobs. So I see that even in the way in which we advertise the education in law, for example. We say, well, look, you don't have to be a lawyer, but we will give you a set of skills that um, will help you out in many different jobs right. uh, or potential jobs. And then you know, we would also point to things like you know, having the academic credential, having a degree does seem, for some reason that is not fully understood, seem to have a positive impact on people's income, labor, and life. And this seems to be a fairly robust finding across Even a lot now, of countries. Do you,
0: Is that found now still?
2: Uh, Yeah, up to to now, I mean, I don't know exactly what will happen to the current generation of graduates, but Mm -hmm. um, certainly every study I've looked at shows that there is some positive uh, impact of education on uh, future income. That's interesting,
0: because obviously, you know, with with our generation, it very much feels like uh, degrees and qualifications are becoming less and less valuable, but there's still a positive trend then? Yeah,
2: there's still a positive trend, but, but again... If you look at theoretical explanations for this in the literature, no one really knows exactly what is causing it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it you know it, it might not actually be the uh, education that you receive. It, there might be some kind of um, peer group effect you know mm-hmm. going to university mm-hmm. with a group of people who will do well in future life and having that peer group that you can tap into that might be the, right. what's, what's happening there, uh, or it might just be that it, uh, being educated gives you a certain Um, confidence and self-belief that you can translate into other endeavors Mm -hmm. in life it may not be the particular skills or bits of knowledge that you're learning that have this kind of positive impact yeah Yeah. Um, but i don't i guess with all historical trends you can say that that's that's been true up until now what will be true in the future Mm -hmm. is not entirely clear yeah Yeah, Um, I wonder
1: whether we're kind of getting to this point where now obviously people have got degrees then go and get masters and PhDs are becoming a lot more common for people to to get but then you've also got these massively online open courses that people are now subscribing to and I think a lot of sort of digital companies that I know as well are trying to find ways to accredit these skills that are now being picked up online and I wonder obviously people are saying well a child in Africa with access to the internet can now learn just as much as someone who comes from a rich background and I kind of wonder what implications that might have?
2: Yeah, I think I would be sceptical in the short term about um, whether it will have these uh, kind of massively positive distributive effects that people claim. So having these massive online open courses, will that allow the child in Africa to gain access to um, you know high-income employment? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not clear to me that it will because, again, there are certain barriers to the access of of different kinds of profession, different kinds of job. Mm-hmm. maybe some forms of work are more progressive, maybe things like I don't know uh, the tech industry might be slightly more progressive because they're looking for people with provable skills as opposed to people with uh, degrees um, but you know law practices that and you know, that's where I teach and that's what i'm part of what I'm interested in there are lots of barriers to entry into those professions that are controlled by existing members of the professions. So it's not clear to me that having a massively online open course in legal education will have that kind of positive impact.
0: And do you think um, that technology in general and the internet, so it's kind of not necessarily looking at the education side, but um, certainly generally speaking, do you think um, it's giving people more access to certain professions? So, for example, I um, guess we had on before, his wife wanted to work for Mac, uh, the makeup uh, company, and uh, they turned her down, and then she created a YouTube channel and did loads of makeup tutorials, and now is, I think, the sales direct sales manager, something like that. <laughs> Um, quite high up in the in the company. Do you, do you see that being a, a more common trend, or do you feel that maybe are we going to end up going down a more self employed route?
2: Yeah, I guess I'm I'm not sure, and I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask to speculate about this because I, I don't necessarily think too much about um, yeah, like how uh, the internet is changing access to different professions per right. se. But you know, you you can always point to these examples of people who do well based on um, YouTube videos with makeup application tutorials, and there are mm-hmm. some people who do very well from it. Um, but I I wonder how true that is in general. Right. Um, you, you can always point to these kind of individual anecdotes, people who That's true. benefit from it. Um, but I don't know if there's been any kind of systematic studies done of access to professions. Mm-hmm. Like, like this is kind of links to a point which is worth making. Um, which is something that a lot of people who write about the impact of technology on employment now um, refer to, which is the phenomenon of winner-takes-all markets. Right. And there's an increasing number of these winner-takes-all markets, so uh, it's where a very few people can capture a lot of the value in some economic domain. Mm-hmm. So,
3: right.
2: you know, Google captures pretty much all the value now in uh, online search and advertising.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's all going through them, They're they're a big company, but they don't employ a huge number of people worldwide.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, certainly in comparison to some of the larger companies in the past, like oil companies or something, they would employ many uh, thousands more people. Mm-hmm. Or some of the large like finance corporations would, would employ many more people than Google would employ. And yet Google, ca- Google capture a huge amount of value in one single market. Same is true for things like Facebook mm-hmm. or Amazon. Again, in retail, they capture a huge uh, worldwide market they're not the biggest in the world but uh, they're one of the biggest um because of this winner takes all effect or the superstar effect that's also uh, referred to by people so Mm -hmm. the internet makes it possible for superstars to shine and capture a lot of value but how positive this is for the entire population of the earth is Mm -hmm. is not clear
0: do you think uh maybe kind of on that do you think that that's likely to change or do you think that's going to maybe continue along that trajectory I mean obviously it's difficult to look into the the crystal ball but kind of as things are building now you see a lot of um, build up of like niche uh, businesses which actually do very well for themselves Uh, do you think we're going to end up going down a more niche route or do you think it is going to be like The big five internet companies of the world. Well,
1: you've got like people like Uber, I guess, who are kind of taking over that sort of taxi service. You've got Airbnb who are kind of owning the hotel service. It's kind of, I guess, that's kind of what you're saying. These superstars, and then if a lot of that, like you, you speak about Amazon, and all right, and their factories have now got these little machines that go around delivering stuff. So that's although they suck out a massive part of the market in terms of being a store that everyone can go to. At the same time, it then takes a lot of jobs because then they may be. Automate a lot of the jobs that work currently in those services.
2: Yeah, I think it's like worth dwelling on those examples of, of Uber or Airbnb or Amazon to some extent, and, and how they work. So you have um, a large conglomerate, a large company that is controlling, or not uh, controlling, isn't maybe not the correct word, but certainly uh, taking a majority of um, the value in a in a market, mm-hmm. um, and they're kind of like intermediary companies they facilitate interactions between customers and suppliers to an extent so that like what uber is doing is it's supplying a, a platform on which drivers can be linked to um, customers mm-hmm. but a lot of those drivers are employed in what academics would call it pr- very precarious uh, forms mm-hmm. okay they um, they don't have the same kind of like long- term career protections that used to be in place in the mid 20th century they don't mm-hmm. have the same kind of health care coverage or insurance and all that they, they are actually responsible for a lot of their own uh, in covering their own expenses you know mm-hmm. their own car their own uh, insurance and that kind of thing um so well actually i think uh, uber does underwrite um, insurance so they do create jobs but they create very different types of jobs mm-hmm from what used to be the case in let's say mid 20th century mm-hmm. less secure more precarious forms of employment uh, and that might be deemed problematic and i think that the trend is for more of these kind of large uh, intermediary type companies that um facilitate the interactions between suppliers of, of some kind of good or service and uh consumers and they do it through uh, what we nowadays call roughly kind of social platforms social internet platforms yeah like airbnb would be a good example and it yeah
0: so it's kind of like that that middleman platform for them um but actually there was an interesting article which i think jem flagged up to me about the the gig economy as a as a whole um what are your kind of thoughts on the gig economy obviously you've talked about you know the security of it in terms of uh health insurance and all that sort of stuff but but what's your general feeling about kind of the gig economy and where it might potentially be going for um for as an employment route
1: or self-employment route and i guess there's those statistics out there saying that everybody like by i think 2020 20 or however long it is there's going to be like 70 percent of people are going to be freelancers
2: working from the for themselves yeah, I think it's it's kind of the the form of employment that is uh, beginning to um, kind of dominate mm-hmm. the labor market. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I see that even in in higher education, the amount of kind of temporary mm. employees in higher education, uh, short term teaching staff, yeah, that um, that's beginning to increase dramatically.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In the U.S., it's a huge trend in higher education. They refer to the adjunct teaching market. Right. Adjunct teachers, I think they're about 70% of the labor force in, in higher education in the U.S., mm-hmm. maybe less in the U.K. and in Ireland, where I work, but beginning to increase. So that's just one example. And I, I see it happening in other fields of work, too. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in legal work, there's an increasing reliance on these kind of short-term uh, temporary staff right. as well. So I think we, I think the, we are heading towards a future of freelancers. Okay for sure.
0: And, and what, um, again, generally speaking, and, and a lot of my questions are going to be very general. <laughs> so yeah. I have we're to we're not, we're not looking for like the exact answer. <laughs> um, but, but generally speaking, like let's say 10, 20 years time, what do you think the world is going to look like? So, I mean, in terms of work, do you think, um, a lot of the menial jobs are going to have been replaced by Software, computer programs, and if that's the case, like uh, what sorts of jobs is the everyday average Joe going to be doing, uh, and those sorts of things? What what's your kind of vision for that?
2: Yeah, so I guess there are um, a couple of ways of, of thinking about this. One way is to look at a, a framework that has been used by an MIT economist called David Autor, mm-hmm. where he talks about the polarization effect in labor markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Broadly speaking, you can define the kinds of work that are done in the economy into three main uh, categories there 's routine work uh, mm-hmm. there 's manual work, and there 's abstract work
3: mm-hmm.
2: so you know routine work involves uh, you know, basic kind of bookkeeping clerical skills that are following a set of rules to produce a certain kind of output It also includes certain forms of physical productive labor, like in manufacturing mm-hmm. and we 've very clearly seen that type of work being. Taken over and, uh, and sub, uh, re- human labor has been replaced by machines in that mm-hmm. domain of work yeah uh, okay C- again computerization is all about the ability to you know code uh, programs that follow kind of defined rule sets mm-hmm. nowadays, computers are also learning uh, machine learning techniques allows them to engage in more novel and creative forms of work, but traditionally, what computers are good at are replacing routine forms of work mm-hmm. you can comp- combine computerization with Um, physical technologies, manufacturing robots and the like, and you get to replace routine forms of of manufacturing work as well. Mm So we've seen that domain of work uh, decrease uh, in line with the increase in in technological growth. Mm -hmm. The other two forms of work, then abstract work and manual work, these are much more difficult to automate or have been historically much more difficult to automate. Mm -hmm. Abstract work requires some kind of abstract problem solving skill, creativity, um, some kind of emotional labor management of of people as well. Mm -hmm. Usually requires um, a high degree of education. Difficult to automate that. Certain forms of manual work have also been very difficult to automate, uh, Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, groundskeeping work or, Fruit picking was, was traditionally a very difficult thing to, to automate. It required a lot more computing power to automate that than it would mm-hmm. to automate um, some kind of mathematical job. Like Actually, computing was traditionally a job that was performed mainly by women, uh, just uh, performing routine mathematical calculations. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so, like Autor would say, what we've witnessed is a polarization of the labor market. Uh, routine work occupied really the kind of the middle of the labor market middle income middle skilled jobs mm-hmm. that 's vanished effectively now or increasingly vanishing mm-hmm. and we 're left with these two extremes of abstract work, which is a you know, highly educated workforce usually very well rewarded for their work
3: mm-hmm. and
2: then the manual workers who are lower skilled there's lower barriers to entry into manual work the manual work would be also things like um certain forms of healthcare worker uh, or care worker, who you know, people who look after the elderly, or things like that. Mm-hmm. They may not be necessarily um, as highly skilled as people might like. Um, difficult to automate those forms of labor as well. So we've witnessed this polarization effect.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we might expect that to continue in the future. That's, that's one vision. And that seems to be the vision of Autour, that these things will, will continue to be difficult to automate in the future. The alternative view is that these things are themselves likely to be automated in the future as well, and we're seeing advances now in robotics and artificial intelligence that enable certain certain forms of creative labor to be um, automated and certain forms of abstract labor to be automated, and also these difficult manual tasks that we thought were hard to be automated are also now being automated. So we—I yeah. don't know if you've uh, seen this thing called Baxter. It's a a robot invented by a guy called Rodney Brooks at MIT. Yeah.
3: Oh,
0: I'm, I think I might have done, actually.
2: Yeah. It's not sure. able I've seen quite
0: a few robots, so I'm not sure which yeah. one it is. <laughs> yeah,
2: there's a very good video on YouTube that some of your listeners might be interested in watching. It's um, CJ CGP Grey is the name of the YouTube channel.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's called Humans Need Not Apply
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: is the name of the video. And it goes through uh, examples of automation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good 15 minutes long it's good kind of argument about the potential future of of employment
3: mm-hmm.
2: and he has this example of Baxter which is a, a kind of a manufacturing physical skills robot that right. is able to learn basic skills and copy human beings mm-hmm. oh yeah i have seen this one actually it's much more dexterous than the traditional manufacturing robots if you've ever seen like a car factory The way that the robots work in that car factory, they're fixed in place. They're able to do kind of one or two things very well and very fast and efficiently. Mm -hmm. But they don't have much dynamism or flexibility to them. Baxter is a much simpler robot, much cheaper than these large industrial robots, but is actually capable of learning and performing more dexterous physical skills. Mm -hmm. So with the growth of that kind of robotics, we may see these manual forms of labor also being automated.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So the the question then becomes, well, what is there left for humans to do? And um then you get into deeper questions about like what is the future of the economy? Will the traditional kind of capitalist system still apply? Mm-hmm. Will we all need to work to get an income anymore in the future? Maybe not. Maybe there need to be a divorcing of income from um things that we do in our lives, work. Mm-hmm. Um or you know, will we all be scrambling for fewer and fewer jobs? Or will we kind of transition into a whole other type of work uh, in the future of kind of more leisure-based or games type work. That's one possibility as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I know. I think is so, it, Dan Priestley talks a lot. Is it Dan Priestley, Jim, that talks about a yeah. lot about the future of work and, and kind of this idea that the cost of manufacturing things and the cost of producing things, because we're becoming so efficient technologically in creating things, whether that be uh, just creative content, or even if it is um, the manufacturing side and the bookkeeping, the routine work, as you say. Um The cost of that is becoming so efficient that actually things are going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so that we may not even need the massive amounts of income. And if indeed it is going the route where all sort of work can be automated, it's this idea that the cost of living is going to become so ridiculously cheap that almost there'll be no need for the work.
2: Yeah, um, there are a couple of people who have kind of advanced similar arguments. Uh, there's a guy called Jeremy Rifkin. I don't know if you've uh, read any of his work. He has a book called The Zero Marginal Cost Society.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I've, heard, um, that. I've not heard that one. Yeah, which is about how the, you know, the cost of producing things now, we're reaching the point where it's a zero marginal cost to mm-hmm. produce. Well, it's very clear in the digital domain. Mm-hmm. You know, There's zero marginal cost, really, for producing a new book. Once I've written the book, I can produce an infinite, infinite number of copies of it. Yeah. Same with songs and music. But with like the rise of let's say 3D printing, an increasing number of physical goods are becoming digitized. Mm-hmm. They can be copied and translated through the digital medium, so the the marginal cost for those is going down as well. Mm-hmm. So we're entering what some people would refer to as an age of abundance. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have everything we possibly need, um, or what we traditionally perceived that we needed. Uh, I guess needs are a somewhat flexible category of mm-hmm. for human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, thirty years ago, I didn't need the internet to survive, but now I probably do. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's, there's always these shifting goalposts. Yeah, uh, but a lot of what we traditionally perceived that we needed will become abundant. So what will we look to next? We like the economy has always thrived on scarcity. Mm-hmm. What's scarce? Um, what do you have competitive advantage in supplying? well, there probably won't be a lot of these services that can be automated. Mm-hmm. What will it be in the future? I think that's the, the big question. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I, oh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. One possibility I think is that it will be a largely kind of a leisure based economy, uh, mm-hmm. where well, the two possibilities I think will, will happen. One is that we, we don't really have an economy in the traditional sense because we've divorced income from what we do. and. Mm-hmm. Um, through systems like the basic income guarantee, which uh, you may be familiar with, that everyone's just paid an income for a living. Mm-hmm. And then they are kind of free to exercise their creative interests mm-hmm. as, as they see fit. Or else we'll have a kind of a, a more leisure based economy where what we employ ourselves doing are kind of games type activities. Because mm-hmm. that's one domain in which we don't really care how good humans are, or sorry, how good machines are. At, uh, in comparison to humans, mm-hmm. you know, I could watch, uh, I could watch a robot hit a perfect tee shot in golf mm-hmm. over and over again, but you know, so I don't have hate to do that and it wouldn't be entertaining for human beings, but I would watch uh, Rory McIlroy do it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's, everyone switches to a job like that where mm-hmm. the advantage that, that machines have over humans um, is less relevant.
0: We interrupt this broadcast of Powerful Nonsense to talk about our sponsors for the show. First of all, we've got to thank the University of Northampton, who've been sponsoring us for quite a while. Uh, Thank you to them for our support. Um, If you are looking to go to university and you're thinking about setting up your own side gig as well, your own business, then I'd say Northampton's probably the place to go. Uh, They specialise in social entrepreneurship as well. So it's all about business with a social impact as well and good conscience. So check them out, northampton.ac.uk. So also, we've teamed up with Fiverr. Now, if you don't know what Fiverr is, it's like a creative marketplace where you can kind of like pay people a small sum of money just to maybe write a blog post on your behalf, design a blog header, design an Instagram image or whatever, infographics, all that sort of stuff. Even jingles for your podcast if you're deciding you want to compete with us. <laughs> Prices literally start at a Fiverr. That's why it's called Fiverr. And $5. So if you're in the UK, that's what, like three quid? Mm-hmm. Which is pretty good. Sometimes they will up it. But as a starting point, think five pounds. Head over to Fiverr.com. That's Fiverr with two R's on the end. F-I-V-E-R-R dot com. And when you get to your... Checkout. Checkout. That's the word I was after. You enter in the little coupon code... PN podcast and we'll give you twenty percent off. How Decent. good are we? Decent. See, you tune in, we give you twenty percent off Fiverr. So with that out of the way, let's go back to the show.
1: We definitely wanted to touch on the point about the um basic guaranteed income because me and Wayne were kind of having that discussion, it was like, well, if that did come into play, and obviously for a lot of people their work is most of their existence. And so if you don't work, how do you, I mean, going back to sort of Victor Frankl, like how do you find meaning? And if you don't have a kind of a why for what you're doing, like what kind of implications do you think that might have, especially, I mean, in terms of the mental mentality? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, I've kind of written a lot about this and if people are interested, I have a, um, a series on my blog called uh, technological unemployment and the value of work, which delves into a lot of these, themes mm-hmm. in more detail. Uh, and I also did a, another podcast with a, um, g- a couple of, uh, or two interviews in America. It's called the Review the Future podcast. So it does life have meaning in a world without work.
3: Uh, oh, I right? nice.
2: go to these themes in a, in a lot of detail. Um, I basically, I think there's reason for maybe optimism and, and pessimism on uh, the meaning of life or in, in a future without work as we traditionally conceive it.
3: hmm
2: one kind of positive aspect of it is that we could be much more kind of subjectively fulfilled by what we do because we can choose to do whatever we want. Assuming that we're not suffering from huge hardship from a lack of income, again, assuming we have everything we need, we live in an age of abundance,
3: mm-hmm.
2: we'll be able to choose to do what we like to do. Um, and we might, again, transition to this kind of games playing uh, system where we set up these kind of arbitrary tasks for ourselves to perform and mm-hmm. um, that are challenging and engaging. And we can participate in communities who are playing similar games and we can get better at them. This can be very rewarding and fulfilling for us. So that's one possibility. And that's kind of an optimistic possibility. Mm-hmm. The less optimistic possibility is that one problem is that we might be cut off from objective sources of meaning because traditionally philosophers have thought of of meaning as being divided into three main categories there's uh the good the true and the beautiful and your life is meaningful to the extent that you can contribute to the good i.e I- making the world a better place doing moral work uh the the true can you understand the world around you can you develop theories that help us to understand the world around us and the beautiful can you contribute to works of art and uh, make works of art that are deeply meaningful and, and uh, create powerful aesthetic and other types of experiences for, for people. Mm-hmm. So will we be able to continue to do those three things in the future? Well, it's not clear. Um, a lot of moral work involves supplying people with what they need, mm. uh, you know, correcting for deficits in their health and well-being, supplying them with food, alleviating poverty. That's all moral work. But maybe a lot of that could be handed over to machines and automated. Um, there are ways in which this is happening already. A lot of work in healthcare can be automated. A lot of work in the distribution of goods and services could be automated as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe there would be no space for us left to do this kind of moral work, which supplies our life with meaning. Uh, what about you know, contributing to the understanding of the universe and the understanding of the world? Well, it's also increasingly true that a lot of scientific endeavor is being automated, um, science is increasingly a big data world, mm. where no real individual can contribute to understanding things. That a lot of uh, pattern matching and, and um, experimental uh, um, formulation and hypothesis testing is now performed by machines.
0: Right.
2: So maybe we have less to contribute there in figuring out how the world works. The same is true for some kinds of mathematical calculation you can solve certain kinds of theorem through brute force uh, with, the, with a computer um so we won't be able to contribute to that domain of meaning anymore or we won't be able to pursue that so what are we left with i suspect we're probably only left with the beautiful as a realm of, of meaning right. um, because I, i'm skeptical about whether machines would ever take over in producing works of art because i think even though you know, humans can or computers can write music and they can um, produce drawings and things like that, or paint work or, or works of painting. Mm-hmm. Um, they doesn't carry the same kind of aesthetic meaning for human beings as uh, human-produced work of mm-hmm. art would. Um, so you know, that's a kind of more pessimistic view of what the the future entails in a world without work.
0: Mm-hmm. And we were we again we were kind of having that debate about um, the uh, guaranteed kind of income and kind of how that, and I suppose it comes back to whether or not the capitalism would really work. And, and as you were talking about the whole games playing thing, it made me think about that, um, black mirror episode, which I'm sure you've watched black mirror given your, your, uh, uh, opinions on technology and stuff. But um the episode I have to admit I haven't actually seen it. Before. You haven't? Oh I think and you should really check it. it out. I think you'll you'd really it. enjoy it. Um but there was a particular keep episode. Me to watch it, yeah. Sorry?
2: People keep telling me to watch it, but Yeah, I, I think you should. <laughs>
0: I think it will it will definitely appeal to, to your interests. Um but there's an episode basically where um from what it seems is the economy runs on uh basically people cycling on like these keep fit bikes to generate electricity to power um all the technology that we're using and they essentially live in these little um, gamified little pods yeah they're like very small rooms probably 10 foot by 10 foot at max and all the walls are screens and essentially as they're cycling and generating this electricity they generate a digital currency which they can then spend on uh Watching entertainment, playing uh, video games, or skipping adverts on uh, certain video games, pornography, um, and avatar um, yeah. gear customization, gear and stuff, yeah. and customization. And um, yeah, do you think that that perhaps a digital currency could end up taking over rather than necessarily a solid currency like we've got so? Let's use Bitcoin as an example, even though that's a little bit unpredictable. But, but this idea that um, if we are going down a leisure route, is your necessarily your your score in a game then going to generate your currency, which you can then spend on more leisure?
2: Yeah, like I think that's um, highly possible. I mean, a lot of digital or virtual games have generated their own economies, and mm-hmm. that they're studied frequently by economists in the fact that people are actually willing to pay money for upgrading their character in Second Life or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, or World of Warcraft. Um, That's always struck people as interesting. Um, I think, you know, we don't have hard currencies at all anymore. That's true. Um, All currencies now are based on a system of trust, whether you can enforce a system of trust. We do that now through government, Mm -hmm. ultimately backed up by force. They can um, enforce a currency system. Can digital tools like Bitcoin and the blockchain technology, can that enforce a system of trust? Uh, possibly. I think it's already doing so for certain niche audiences, niche mm-hmm. groups. It's still all ultimately tied to fiat currencies that are backed by governments because mm-hmm. people like the idea that Bitcoin is partly popular because people think they can translate it back into uh, currencies like the dollar or something right. you know that's why people watch like the dollar exchange rate mm-hmm. with with bitcoin um will we ever transition entirely to a digital currency based system i think we will but i think we're a good bit away from that yet because i think the general population is not comfortable with the idea mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of people out there who still think currencies should be tied to gold right mm-hmm. to the gold reserve system um and it's whether they will come on board with the a digital currency or not that's uh it's kind of a, a uh, speculation that I can't really um, imagine or I can't mm-hmm. predict so, yet.
1: So is there any sort of um, research that you're looking at at the moment that's kind of really sort of blowing your mind in terms of what you're interested
2: in? Um, I don't know if anything's really blowing my mind um, <laughs> in terms of of research. Uh, one thing that I do find interesting is actually how much these ideas are being taken up in popular culture and in political debates
3: mm-hmm.
2: so when i started looking into topics like the basic income guarantee it's been around for a long time as an idea um you know if you go back to the early part of the 20th century or the mid part of the 20th century there were people talking about a basic income guarantee and about mm-hmm. separating. Uh, income from, from labor, even some quite conservative figures. Uh, Milton Friedman was a famous conservative economist in the U.S. who advocated something like the basic income back in the early 1970s. Mm. But it, as a as a solution to the problem of technological unemployment, it's really kind of entered into popular debate in the past few years. And the number of governments around Europe in particular who are uh, willing to experiment with or political parties that are willing to advocate the basic income has really taken off um, in the in even the last two or three years to an ex- surprising extent. So that's kind of blowing my mind to some extent. Uh, so I just looked at a story this morning that Germany is going to experiment with a basic income in certain um, federal districts or certain towns. There's towns in in the Netherlands that are experimenting with a basic income as we speak, or they're planning to do so. I think in the next twelve months, mm-hmm. Finland are looking to introduce a basic income guarantee in the next couple of years. There's uh, Switzerland, they're introducing a referendum, I think sometime this year, 2016, on a basic income guarantee. And this is all kind of emerging from concerns about technology and technological unemployment, as best I can tell anyway. And also actually in Ireland, we're entering into an election cycle and what was formerly one of the two biggest parties in the country, uh, they've now fallen back a bit post the 2008 crisis, since they're largely blamed for that. They are now advocating a basic income guarantee. Um, Even though they rejected it, I think, 13 years ago, they rejected it as a policy idea. Mm -hmm. They're now willing to advocate it because the world has changed so much. I wonder whether that's that's that's
1: because I saw a graph the other day. I don't know if it might have been on your blog or when I was doing some research. And it was kind of like it had manufacturing against unemployment. And it shows like the amount of output that's happening has gone up so high but the amount of people actually being unemployed is dropped drastically and i'm wondering whether that's obviously especially with the internet they probably didn't predict that it would be as popular or as big as they expected and the transformation it's had over just a few years is incredible and i'm guessing maybe they're starting to actually really think oh god this could be serious because i know my um my girlfriend's dad he's worked in tax his whole life and even him he said this whole digital currency thing he goes i said oh what's like How's it sort of going at the moment? What are they kind of thinking about? Where's it moving? And they said they're still in that sort of phase, but they just seriously don't really know. No one knows how how it's going to move. And everyone's trying to say, okay, we'll keep it as it is for as long as possible. But they, I guess a lot of people just don't have the answer. And I guess that comes to the inability to predict where it's going to go.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think the shift can happen very quickly because uh, this is an idea, again, that's been prevalent in the tech community since probably the 60s, the idea of exponential growth mm. in, and exponential improvement in technology. That's what Moore's Law, you may be familiar with this, yeah. is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you, know, you can double uh, processing power every 18 months. Yeah. And if you double and double and double over time, you get an exponential growth curve. So an exponential growth curve change looks very gradual initially for a long period of time, and then it just takes off very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So, if you have exponential growth in a number of technologies and they're all converging at once, you could have this massive exponential takeoff and a really dramatic shift in society, in how the economy works and how society is organised.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That kind of just creeps up on people, and they haven't really haven't realised uh, yeah. the extent of the change that's necessary. Well, I think that's, that, that's what could be happening at the moment.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think of um things like Netflix with things like that i mean 10 years ago trying to stream a video on over your internet was excruciatingly painful and now most of the entertainment industry is now like it's almost uh, um what's the word i'm looking for but it but it kind of pivots on Netflix now a lot um you've got uh, things that are being produced that wouldn 't be produced if it wasn 't for Netflix and things like that as an example, and I think I look at the um, I think we were talking about it earlier um, the motor industry is i think very close to having a huge upheaval uh, just because of just again how quickly that technology is moving and the the kind of unpredictability of it and um I was having a chat over Christmas about um you know whether or not the insurance companies are going to end up getting in the way of the self-driving car and and how that's going to affect insurance and things like that. And it, Again, it's one of those things where nobody really knows where it's going to go, just because as you say, it's just kind of crept up on them.
2: Yeah, there are books written in the mid-2000s, like 2004, which predicted that we would never have a self-driving car, or that it certainly we wouldn't have it for another 50 or 60 years.
3: Mm.
2: And now it's becoming, it's a reality. We have self-driving cars, we just don't allow people to use them.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> um, and we're we're still in, we're still in a testing phase for them, mm. but they are in existence. Mm. And I think actually insurance companies will probably be in favor of this uh, because they'll say it's a reduced number of accidents. Mm-hmm. The ideal, um, the ideal customer for an insurance company is somebody who pays their low rate of premium and never makes a claim. That's true. Mm-hmm.
3: That is true. That's what
2: they want. But also, I think the way in which self driving cars could disrupt the Automobile industry, or the driving economy in general, or the transport economy, could be quite dramatic. You may as well stop owning cars in the future. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people will stop owning cars because they'll be owned by Google or Uber, and you'll just rent one out whenever you need one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the same way that you stream a movie, you don't own the DVD anymore. You on-demand cars—that's amazing. I hadn't thought of on-demand that.
1: cars. That's a brilliant idea. That is and I guess it kind of happens with people kind of when people were kind of like sharing cars and I guess that's sort of like a next phase up is just book your car the, on through Uber and it just turns up outside, takes you where you need to go and that's it.
2: <laughs> yeah. So like the ownership over goods and services in society could be shifting dramatically from a, an individual owner basis to a, in a streaming system for virtually any object you can imagine. Mm. In that sense. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's incredible.
1: Um, is
0: there anything else you wanted to say? I'm trying to think. There were loads of things that just cropped up earlier that I was like, I have to ask about that. But I'm just- <laughs>
1: yeah. I was just wondering, what's your sort of um, take? Obviously, you're talking about this whole gamification and it seems to be quite popular in the fact that Facebook have obviously picked up the... Um- Virtuality goggles oh, virtual so i was just wondering like <laughs> do you have any sort of um take on where you might think that might be heading especially when you think that it could be this whole world of gamification and hopefully it won't just be people with their goggles on playing be- bejeweled or crossy road
2: <laughs> yeah i think the kinds of uh, virtual experience that we will be capable of having in the future will be obviously much richer and mm. uh, more immersive and more rewarding than the kind of dystopian vision um, that's imagined in that Black Mirror episode that you you uh, referred to earlier on. Again, I yeah. haven't seen it, but you know the idea of just pedaling a bicycle to fuel or to create electricity to for the technology that doesn't sound incredibly <laughs> positive to me because we're then just like slaves to the technology. I wouldn't mm-hmm. like that future. I would like one in which we're still kind of uh, in charge of the technological infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, and I think those kinds of dystopian visions are skewed slightly because there are ways in which virtual reality environments will be um, possibly even better and more rewarding than physical environments. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who would argue that we are biased towards the physical world because that's what we're located in. Mm-hmm. That's what we're situated in. But, you know, if we, if the virtual world has become more rewarding, there's no, necessary reason why we should be biased towards the physical world. I just, I mean, to give an example of this, um, there's a famous uh, philosopher called Robert Nozick who had an argument called the experience machine argument, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: where he presented you with this thought experiment and asked if you were given the choice between living your life as you live it now with all the kind of pleasures and, um, pains of an ordinary existence or plugging into a machine and living a slightly better life, would you choose to live in the machine or not? So if I, if I put that question to you, what, what would you say? Well, I get
1: what you're saying. And get, mm-hmm. In a certain sense, you're thinking, well, I'm not actually really feeling it if I'm, not, if I'm in a virtual reality, but then if it is slightly better and it has all the senses of having the same experience, you think, well, you're probably going to go for the slightly better
2: one.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, so that's interesting. I, I probably primed you in a certain way, to, to answer <laughs> this, this way. I realize now by setting up the conversation um, earlier on, But most people will say no in response Mm -hmm, to that. They they don't like the idea of plugging in. And Nozick says, well, this means we need reality. There's something important about reality, not just experience. Mm -hmm. However, there are some experimental philosophers, basically philosophers, who ask lots of people their reactions to um, thought experiments. They're psychologists of a type who have done variations on Nozick's thought experiment with real people. And one of them was a guy called uh, Philippe de Magard, who wrote a paper a few years ago, which went through four variations on the experience machine thought experiment. I won't go through them all, I'll just mention one of them, which was a, an inversion of Nozick's original experiment, which was imagine you were living in a virtual reality environment your whole life, mm-hmm. basically the equivalent of the scenario depicted in the movie The Matrix. Mm-hmm. You're living in this kind of world, it's very rewarding and meaningful to you, what happens there, and you're asked, do you want to plug out and live in a, another world, which is pretty much the same, um, with same kinds of experiences, maybe some marginal gains.
3: Mm.
2: Would you choose to do that? And he found that most people wouldn't want to plug out in that case. That's quite right. interesting. <laughs> so he he, he, th- he thinks that the Nozick's experience machine argument it's based on a status quo bias. This is mm-hmm. something I started the podcast actually talking about the way in which professions are biased towards the status quo. Mm-hmm. In terms of our relationship with virtual reality and real reality, that might also be influenced by a status quo bias. Uh, it mm-hmm. be very interesting to see where this goes in the next few years, for sure.
0: Yeah, I suppose if, if the only thing that you know is this virtual reality, then of course, you, as you say, with the status quo bias, you're going to be bias towards sticking with what you know. It's kind of almost like going into a restaurant and going, I'm going to try something different. And then you look at the menu and you go, yeah, but I really like that one thing that I always have, so I'm going to have that again.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, this might be happening in ways already. Um, you know, with... I, I don't have children myself, but you know, with children playing a video game of football versus actually going out and playing it in the park. Mm. You know, there's a huge amount of fear anyway around parents but letting their children... Uh, go out and play in the park, they're f- afraid of what will happen to them, mm-hmm. they might get injured, whatever. It's kind of safer for them to uh, play the game on TV. Yeah. Uh, or on a screen, sorry. Well, what if they could do this in a, in a virtual reality environment in which they are still physically mobile, and so they're they're not sedentary and passive in this environment, mm-hmm. but it's safer for them than being in the real world? Yeah. <laughs> Would people not suddenly develop a bias towards this safer environment it's
1: definitely something worth pondering (laughs)
0: these questions
1: john i was going to ask you obviously you're speaking to like um uh, graduates and students at your university how do you kind of if you know this sort of stuff how do you kind of equip them for the future in as best way you can or do you kind of just have to give them the status quo of what where it's at at the current moment
2: yeah it's difficult so one thing i would say is that i i'm My main kind of research interests are around philosophy and and future technology. But I teach law in a law school. Mm -hmm. So there's somewhat of a divorce between my research interests and what I teach. Um, And sometimes it's difficult to find overlaps between them. I do try to find them when I can. In terms of how I prepare students for the future, this is something I'm trying to think about much more seriously now. Uh, And I haven't really been self-critical or critical of the existing infrastructure to this point. I've just kind of taken it as a given and I've taught courses following a fairly standard curriculum. Mm -hmm. And to some extent that is forced upon me because, again, ostensibly, even though let's say 50% of law graduates don't go on to practice law, that's probably a safe estimate,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. 50% of them want to. And they kind of expect you to prepare them for professional qualifications and professional exams. Mm-hmm. So I am still bound to teach to a certain type of curriculum, to cert- teach certain types of skills yeah. that the professional bodies expect you to teach.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Even though a lot of the professionals themselves, who, people who actually work in law firms, will tell you that, well, those exams really don't help the students to become uh, the kinds of professionals that we need nowadays. Right. They aren't really preparing them for the skills. They're still actually quite wedded to that traditional system. Uh, there's a strange paradox involved there. Again, that might be because they, they came up through that system. It's the system they're familiar with and they're biased towards that uh, system as well.
1: So if you find yourself being quite rigid to what you teach, if you didn't have to be rigid, what would maybe be some of that advice you'd maybe pass on to them?
2: Yeah, I think I would... not I would favor like a non kind of specialist type of education. Um, I would prefer to teach generic skills uh, that could again apply across a lot of domains. Th- to an extent, I do that. So I think critical thinking skills are important. Yeah. Um, an ability to assess and analyze information, critically engage with it. Presentation skills are important.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, the ability to articulate and communicate your point of view those are the kinds of skills that are expected of what autor calls these abstract workers. Right. And then also persuasion skills. Uh, if we are moving towards this gig, gig economy, if you like, everyone's constantly in a process of selling themselves. Yeah. So they need that, that skill of persuasion. So I tried and develop those three core skills, critical thinking, uh, presentation and communication and persuasion. And um, stuff
0: sounds good to me. <laughs> So, I mean, we're going to have to start wrapping up soon. Which is I could literally talk to you for hours about this stuff, John, because this stuff fascinates me. Um, but we've got two questions which we ask every guest that we get on. Um, and they because the show is called Powerful Nonsense, the two questions are, what's the most powerful piece of advice you've ever been given? And what's the biggest load of nonsense you've ever heard?
2: Uh, I, unfortunately, I didn't uh, prepare for these two questions. So that's that's never, all right. Nobody, nobody does.
0: We always, we always catch people out with them anyway, so it's fine.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's the most powerful piece of advice that I've ever been given? God, I, I don't know. I feel like I need to think about that for a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> What's on the top of your head? Uh, Well, I suppose the thing that's on top of my head is is quite a philosophical idea, which I actually wrote about recently Mm -hmm. on my blog, which was, um, it's an idea from Stoic philosophy, about what you can control and what you can't, and appreciating the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of anxiety and psychological suffering is caused by people thinking they can change things in the world that they don't ultimately have any real positive influence over or control over. And neglecting responsibility for what they do have control over. So in the stoic view, you have control over your beliefs and your reactions to the world. And you don't have control over most things that happen in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think the most powerful piece of advice I've been given or that I've learned is trying to uh, sensitize myself to the difference between those two things. And whenever I feel myself getting...
0: Yeah, that's a really good one. <laughs> it's really good.
2: Yeah, whenever I feel myself getting frustrated with others or with my work, the environment in which I work, I always kind of come back to that piece of advice.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really strong one. And what about the biggest load of nonsense you've ever heard?
2: Um nonsense now. Uh
1: anything you hear from your academic peers.
2: <laughs> you don't have to name names. <laughs> There are lots of things there, but I would be offending so many professional sensibilities <laughs> <laughs> the, big, the biggest load of nonsense i'd probably heard we you know um, people who place a lot of faith in um, meaningless poll data on news web pages i've always find that bizarre you know like the, daily, the, the Daily Mail will conduct a poll on how much you hate immigrants. I mean, this is a terribly stereotypical <laughs> version of the Daily Mail, not far from reality, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a very self selecting audience who mm. um, respond to those kind of polls. And then they'll be reported, and people will use that as information. So, this kind of reliance on meaningless poll data is uh, the biggest piece of nonsense <laughs> yeah. that I can think about at the moment. The I one that it. Uh, frustrates me the most, anyway. I think that's such like
1: obviously a valuable tool for people nowadays. I think like you say, there's so much the media put out all these different stats here and there, they change every week. And I guess as an academic, I guess it's so, I guess you kind of hope that people know how to do their own research, how to dig a little bit deeper, just below that surface of what is actually true. And I guess for so many people, it is that sort of surface level awareness, which usually kind of ends up swaying the the beliefs and mindsets
2: of the many really. Mm Yeah, I think that that's it. And this is becoming more of a problem in the internet age as well. If you look at, um, yeah. if you've read a book like John Ronson's, you've been publicly shamed. Have you come across this book? No,
1: that or, sounds no, really, sounds cool, really
2: interesting. Have you ever familiar with his work at all? Or? No, no. Uh, wrote another book called The Psychopath Test. He's quite a funny reporter, um, <laughs> and the film The Men Hysteric Goats was based on something that he wrote as well. Okay, but yeah, he talks about you've been publicly shamed and the way in which kind of outrage dominates online and you know, people kind of hop around from different, um, to different topics and different sources of outrage and they get really angry about it for a short period of time and then it just burns and fizzles out, but it ruins somebody's life in the, uh, in the meantime. So people are grabbed by these kinds of, um, attention. Sorry, this is going to sound terribly, um, ineloquent, but people's attention is grabbed by these attention grabbing headlines.
3: Yeah.
2: Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I see it all the time. It's a big, big frustration of mine. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I guess maybe that's where that meaning comes in. People want to have something to be angry at, so that it gives them
2: their own <laughs> identity in some ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, identity is identity politics, and uh, the meaning of, of life is, is hugely important and mm-hmm. should not be neglected in any kind of analysis of what's happening in the future.
0: Mm, definitely.
2: Well, that's a great place to leave it. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today,
1: John. I've yeah. really enjoyed it. Literally, my, you know when you kind of find something, when someone says something and you feel like your whole reality has just shook a few times when you're trying to vision the future? I got that a couple of times yeah. while you were talking, <laughs> so I always know that means it's been a good conversation.
0: Yeah. Uh, when can Where can people uh, find slash communicate with you over the old interwebs?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm not particularly difficult to find, so uh, if we just... Google John Danaher and UI Galway, uh you could find details about me. But I do have a blog called Philosophical Disquisitions at blogspot dot com. Um that's probably the main source of information Excellent. about me. Wicked. We'll link that all up in the show notes as well. Yeah. Great. Yeah, people won't remember a <laughs> <laughs> Uh
0: honestly, thanks so much, John, for coming on because this has been a really interesting conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. Me too. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of stuff for people to think about for the next coming decades.
2: (laughs) Uh (laughs) Great, thanks. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Wow. Mind explosion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) big mind explosion. Uh, I love that. That was so good.
1: <laughs> I feel like we could have, like, obviously delved onto so many different topics, but
0: even just what we got out of that was just amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's something that me and you always talk about, of, like, where is it going, what's, uh, I mean, even before we even started the the interview, we were having a debate amongst ourselves about um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, so really good to sit and chat with John. I think it'd be great if we're still podcasting five years to get him on again and see what's happened and see where he thinks he's going. See if he's managed
1: to call anything. Yeah. <laughs> what I really liked as well was just the fact that he managed to kind of share what he thinks graduates of today or young people today or anybody who's in their career should already be thinking about in mm. terms of where the future's heading.
0: Most definitely. So uh, one thing we're going to ask is if you know anyone that could do with listening to this or you think might enjoy it then please just give it a share on Facebook, Twitter, wherever. Just email them, text them, whatever. Just share it with someone because this was great and I'd love more people to hear it. So thanks very
3: much and we'll see you later. See you later. Start your line.